3: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Kathy's dream episode of (laughs) Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week, brought to you this week by Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist, the principal and CEO of Orca, which we don't entirely know what Orca is yet, but we're sure it's going to be a unicorn. (laughs) Um, The author of Weapons of Math Destruction and the general all-round excellent person who is not going to be on this show much more. In fact, we have one more special edition after this one where Kathy is going to weigh in on creative industries and that's it
0: yeah i'm gonna miss you guys
3: we're gonna miss you kathy and so as part of your farewell tour we have given you the the lay of the 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 reins in the saddle the reins in the saddle so um i'm felix Hammond of fusion jordan weissman of slate is also here but this is your show thank you you're taking the reins. wait can i
0: say hello was, you can say we line. already missed that. Okay.
1: Whoa! <laughs> <Hello! laughs> You've been waiting three years to do I that. I know. I know.
0: It was as satisfying as I'd hoped. It was a lot I'm of I'm glad up. to be here.
1: Um, climax. So okay. we're
3: going to be talking about artificial intelligence in law firms. We're going to be talking about statistics in the age of Trump, which is a very Kathy kind of thing. Um but the most Kathy thing that that I think we're going to talk about um because it manages to combine not only big data but also um right-wing conspiracy theories yes is <laughs> it does yes. Cambridge Analytica
0: yeah there was this like really you know widely shared piece originally written by a Swiss magazine dust magazine um last week or it, I guess it was written a couple of weeks ago but it was Translated into English and passed around like it, it like ran around Samizdak. like wildfire, especially among people that like getting offended by Trump. So, like along among the left, and it was basically about. And
3: it, it did eventually appear on Vice after, after appearing on like some weird Samusdat German website. It, That's right. It got it. It appeared. <laughs> it appeared like in sort of badly translated English. It on somehow, Grace.
0: it added to its authenticity that it was like just. <laughs> You know, barely legible. and anyway, it was is real conspiracy theory, except it was kind of based on facts, except it pissed me off because it kind of wasn't anything after all yeah, i i
1: I, I just want to say, and I'll let you continue after this, but it really present it was it was the closest I've ever seen uh, a journalist try to present like a big data firm as straight-up bond villains like that yes
3: was. there's actually a point in there which. Where, where one of the like big evil um, psychometric, you know, evil types. Moves to Singapore and changes his name to Doctor <laughs> <just> Specter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay,
1: there was just a link too. It was like, and we're, we'll let you research that more on your own. <laughs> I, I clicked on the link
3: and I got a 403 error. So uh-huh. I have no There's idea. There's so what that much was. more yeah, there to might look have into. Been,
0: uh, quite a few empty links. Anyway, we need, um, to, we need to. We need to, Kathy. Yeah. So what's more. it about? It's about well, it's about the 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 idea that Trump's digital campaign, his ad campaign that he used on Facebook in the hours before the election um was based on the psychometric profiles of every single voter in the United States. Yes. And you know, it's true. It is actually true. Um but what they did was they took they took the guy who sort of invented this technology from their perspective and they profiled him and they just sort of walked through his life where his technology, this invention, the secret sauce that he'd invented, was being misused and abused and like all the remorse he was feeling about it. Because
3: apparently this was used not only to elect Trump, but also to persuade Britain to leave the EU. That's right. That's
1: right. And it was it was done by a company called Cambridge Analytica. Which
3: happens to be owned by the secretive evil billionaire Robert Mercer, whose daughter is Trump's closest Friend or something, yeah.
1: Robert so some, Mercer, who who played a role, who has played a role in actually picking people in the administration. I mean,
0: yeah, it's very very much tied into the, and we're going to get to that later as well. Yeah.
3: But but wait, can I just say, yeah. like, because we're probably not going to get to this <laughs> bit anymore, um, that that Robert Mercer made his billions by being the CEO of Rentec. Yes. Um, so Jim Simons, who's the founder of Rentec, is one of our sort of Slate Money heroes, and we love him. But his CEO, Robert Mercer, turns out to be. You know, Dr. Specter. I wouldn't
0: exactly say love from my from <laughs> where I'm coming from, but yes. Um Rentec, Renaissance Technology on Long Island, Stony Brook, um, they have these really, really rich guys and Jim Simons does Sort of like philanthropic and scientific things with his money, and Mercer does Trumpian things with yeah. his money.
1: But anyway, so we get we, we let's let's talk about exactly what Cambridge Analytica did. Like, what is this psychometric? Right. Okay, so profiling? and by the
0: way, there's also another thing that's floating around the web that people <laughs> love sharing, <laughs> no, which is an which is an, like a basically a ten minute. Video of the Cambridge Analytica CEO, Nix. His yeah. name is Nix.
3: He's very English.
0: Very English. Talking about the sort of psychometric profiles of every voter in the com- country and how we use these um, profiles to manipulate people. Okay,
3: so first, but let, let's let's start um, three and a half minutes into this segment, Kathy. <laughs> with <laughs> is, with was, what is a psychometric profile?
0: Well, basically, it's a it's an old idea that's being used for decades by companies to um, to sort of profile somebody put like understand them their, their personality in five different ways and one of them is like their extrovertedness one of them is their neuroticism there's three other things and there's all sorts of personality tests that do this that measure people's first five it's called the big five or it's sometimes called the ocean yeah. because there's O-C-E-A-N they N. They're all they all have something, openness,
3: you know extroversion yeah I, f- I forget exactly conscientiousness like something right. like that yeah, yeah. so you put those all together and you get an ocean profile and you can have your O and your C and your E and each one can be measured on a scale of one to however much you right, want right. and that means makes everyone uniquely susceptible to certain messaging in a way that someone who doesn't have your exact psychometric profile would not be and the the kind of conspiracy uh theory here is that what the Trump campaign did was find a way to put together literally 175,000 different ads and depending on your exact psychometric profile target you with exactly the ad which they which was targeted to you and this was not only like so for instance um when barack obama was using social media to get out the vote and stuff he would be like we need to target this kind of person and we'll you know we'll we'll hone our ads to get these kind of people but number one those distinctions were mostly demographic It's like we want to get like black people on the south side of Chicago or something like that. And then it wasn't psychographic. And then the other important part of that was that he was nearly always only targeting Democrats who might vote for him. And one of the interesting things that Trump was allegedly doing was targeting Democrats too and he reckoned that any Democrat they could persuade not to vote for Clinton was just as yeah. good as finding well, a Republican even who would vote for Clinton. I mean, they admitted this. this okay. was, yeah. there I'm, I'm going But this, wait, we're, we're I just, forgetting one
1: really key thing because we keep the tangents. The really important big data part of all this is that these psychometric profiles are put together with Facebook and other social media data. That's a huge, or originally, and then they started incorporating things like consumer purchases and stuff. So it's all the big ve- veins of big consumer data that Kathy's been worrying about for like literally three years now on this show. According to this theory, we're used to elect Donald Trump. So, okay, so that is the bond part put, of the Now I'm going to put
0: like the, you know, the ruler to the stick. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because all of this. Yeah. Is Is somewhat true, but mostly bullshit. OK. And and and, the, and this the... is
3: why Kathy O'Neill cannot leave slate money because she's <laughs> the only person who can actually come out and say this.
0: Well, first of all, it, it's really important to know that Hillary Clinton um, inherited all of Obama's um, information about voters. And I am absolutely convinced that that information was better than what Trump got. Second of all, yeah, they didn't in the Clinton campaign, they they claim they didn't do this big five <clears throat> ocean profiling, but they did a lot of things. And like marketing profiling is almost the same thing. It's just... Phrased differently, it's framed differently. Um, so I and a lot of these kinds of measurements of people are very redundant. So you're like, okay, one of them is called neuroticism, but then the other one is like, um, you know, the likelihood of purchase. You know, it's it's almost the same thing. There's very very consistent redundancies among these kinds of profiles. So that's number one is that Hillary just had lots of data, and there. They, and by the way, she had an enormous team of data scientists. And the most important, critical thing in here with this narrative of this guy whose secret sauce was stolen, is there. There was a publicly available paper on how to do this using Twitter data in 2011. And this is not secret sauce. This stuff was uh, available to data scientists. I am absolutely convinced that someone in the Clinton campaign tried this out yeah
1: i think this is also one of those stories where hindsight bias really is is playing a big with how, how we interpret it because yes. like so this is a you know th- this company seems really impressive because ooh it was part of the brexit campaign and then it was part of the trump campaign and so it seems like they must be doing something right but if you think about it well they were part of the Brexit campaign, and Brexit worked for a million and a half different reasons. They happened to be owned by, in part, or their major investor was Robert Mercer, who was big on the Trump campaign. So they ended up getting involved with the Trump campaign, too. Trump won for a million and a half different reasons. There is plenty of room for coincidence here, but hindsight bias is going to make us read into a
0: narrative here. Yes, thank you. And that, that's exactly right. And I didn't get quite get finished with my oh, description sorry. of the video of Nick's, <laughs> <laughs> which is like, if you see that video and it's very easy to find, the guy is a, is sociopathic. I mean, he's just so hateable Okay, and he's really creepy. And he's like, and we are going to manipulate all of these voters according to how they are most vulnerable. I mean, he doesn't say exactly that, but you watch that video and you're like, this guy is nasty. And so like on the left, it's really easy to think, oh, Trump stole this election with creepy data analytics. And I'm here to say the, the uh, you know, we are doing, we started it. Obama started it. Clinton was doing it as much as she could. It didn't work for her, but and, and by the way, one last thing, Felix, you're right. Like the thing that Trump did, that Trump's campaign did, that was really offensive, that took the step past what I think Clinton was capable of doing, was he did this voter suppression campaign stuff where he they actually sent um, they sent to African American Democratic voters. These videos, um, anti-Hillary videos, that reminded them of the Super Predator comments from the 1980s. I wasn't that
1: offended by that. I just want to say right now, I, a lot of liberals did get offended, and this is a little bit of tangent, but why not? We're doing tangents this episode, which is that was just a re- that was just a trollish way of the Trump campaign saying we're doing negative advertising online. You know, That's all it, is. it was negative so advertising. I have on the a internet. chapter
0: of this stuff in my book, yeah. right? and I talk about the the anti-democratic nature of this asymmetric yeah. mar- targeting yeah. uh, to uh, voters from the campaigns. The campaigns know way more than the voters do. Mm-hmm. And I had this little—I had a paragraph or two about what I was afraid of happening with voter suppression. Like mm-hmm. you have "get out the vote," which is established for campaigns, but what about "don't get out the vote"? That's what I was suggesting. My editor made me take it out. She said that's just—it's—it's too—you um, know, nobody's actually doing that yet. You're going to sound like a crazy person. <laughs> say that. And I was like, okay, I guess I can't say that. But that's what's happening now. Yeah, I think a lot of people are offended by that.
3: And I—I I do think there is something very just like anti-democratic about trying to persuade the other team to not vote yes and i think that it's perfectly legitimate to go out to your own team and say go out and vote and it's much less legitimate to go out to the other team and say don't vote and i and that's Tactically, it has exactly the same effect, but morally, they're very different. I just,
1: I, I think it, I, the distance between this and negative advertising isn't as great as some people made it out to be. I will say, their attitude about it and actively calling it voter suppression does imply a, a sort of grossness, or it does imply there is a grossness about
0: that. Well, but. listen, I, all I can say is we should be offended. We shouldn't think Trump did anything yeah. special. Yeah, and we should absolutely gird ourselves for this to happen more and more in the future.
3: Yeah And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more Wondery Means Business. So, Kathy, this is your episode. Okay. And yet somehow, because you're a generous soul... (laughs) You you have Who you have, said that you have allowed Jordan to wonk out about his favorite because we we know that Jordan is basically a lawyer monkey. I know he
0: wants <laughs> he's like a wannabe <laughs> I, deep
3: down. I chose not to. He I,
0: married a lawyer. I
3: la- married a lawyer. but He I, married a lawyer. Like deep down, he wants to pull a Shane Farrow and just yeah. quit journalism and go to law I, school. I made the choice not to do that. I came this close, um,
0: but you do like talking about I law, do, so I, yeah. I I threw you a bone. What, Thank you. Well, it's law and big data, so.
1: Yeah. For a long time, people have been talking about whether, you know, computers are basically going to replace lawyers, like whether Watson's going to come and take every lawyer's job in America. And um, I guess we're taking another step in that direction right now and a much more interesting step than uh, some of the the previous advances. And before we go on
3: to this, I want because I am hoarding all my Kathy time as much as I can. Yes. I need to ask Kathy this question, which has been. Which uh, So about a month ago when I was, you know, in a certain Swiss town, I had an interesting conversation about artificial intelligence and about Watson um, with an AI uh, professor from, I think it was Dartmouth, and he told me that there is really no such thing as Watson. That Watson does a whole bunch of different things. It does, like, translations, it plays chess, it plays Jeopardy, it does your hr you know payroll yeah you know, it can do a million different things um but what he told me was basically yet yeah, there's no one machine which can do all of those things The ibm is essentially branding a bunch of different ai machines with one brand name watson yeah, to make yeah. it very easy to like you know to make it seem very very clever and powerful but in fact all of those things are so different in terms of the AI that's required that they're basic, they may, They may as well just be different machines.
0: I mean, I'm gonna just throw, that wasn't a question.
3: It's a question, like, <laughs> is he right?
0: Well, yes. Yeah, so I actually wrote a post um, and it's kind of a philosophical issue, but like I wrote a post a few months ago about anthropomorphizing AI. And people, you know, basically people complain about that. They say, oh, you shouldn't anthropomorphize AI um, because it gives people the impression that there's real learning going on, which there isn't, right? Like well, there's, there's machine learning. Yes, well, that, that that itself is anthropomorphizing what's actually happening, right? But, but, but
3: like Watson just...
0: pattern matching going but
3: on. But Watson... In... You know, recently won a game of Texas Hold'em, which is, you know, the latest thing that everyone got impressed by. Yeah, well that's... And, and clearly got better at Hold'em over time. Sure,
0: sure. And that's what AI is really good at. I mean, AI is really good at mastering a very finite universe where the rules are very clear and there's no judgments or ethical calls. Um, chess, go, te- poker. Um, what AI is really bad at, and what Watson, um he's bad at um is anything else, right? like any kind of judgment call, anything like trying to under like model the world and understand whether a given statement is true or not if it's at all ambiguous um and so it's it really is kind of a it's it's kind of a cheat um to to call him Watson to call this collection this constellation of programs Watson but uh, by the way, one last thing which if you if you google search image search AI, which I do every now and then. Every single picture you're going to see is a male brain. It's like oh, a human brain. How can you brain. tell the
3: difference between the male brain and the female? Brain? Because you it's you, you sort of like the
0: you see a face. It's yeah. like it's clearly a male, and it's really interesting to me. Like, so we have a tendency, or we have an absolute, we've made the decision as a culture that AI will be anthropomorphized no matter what. And the what the question is, how do we? So how do when, we grapple So when when I that? do
3: a mental Google image search on yeah, AI, do it, do it. I always get like. A combination of like aqua greens and blues and a bunch blue. of digits mm-hmm. and like white digits. And it's and basically coming straight out of the Matrix movies. Yep. Yep. And somehow people are so unimaginative, they took this movie that came out 15 years ago and they're like, that's the universal shorthand for AI.
0: That's right. Anyway, that's right. lawyers. Lawyers. <laughs> so. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so we're gonna talk about lawyers. No, um, we actually, don't, we, we but don't so this is, on this show. So no, this no. is actually
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna tie it back. So you're talking about ambiguity and yeah, what AI can accomplish. Right. So for a long time, you know the the thing that law firms were using, you know, robots or artificial intelligence for was. Discovery, it, discovery, which is the really the most basic like doc review, like really the most basic stuff. It was, can you it please
3: was, just? It's, it's like Control Left on a bunch of yes, emails. It is and essentially. Can you, can you look for this? Can you can you find the word muppets it is, anywhere in these Goldman <laughs> emails? <is> absolutely, <laughs> the grunt work. I mean, but, that was by the but way. Was,
0: they, like, let's. Let, I mean, it's really an interesting thing already yeah. because number one, it replaced a, a shit ton of people. Yeah, right So
1: what what was interesting about that was that you used to have even at you know, at law firms, you would have a horde of young associates come in and just dig through boxes for hours and hours and hours, and that, and then they would bill their time. And that was the discovery process. And at high-priced law firms, you had high-priced lawyers doing all of this. And then eventually, you had what was called e-discovery, and that got adopted. And you had kind of very uh, rudimentary versions of it, where it was basically control F. And then you got sl- less rudimentary versions, where they were kind of grouping together phrases and finding things that may have been related based on natural language... I mean, I'm gonna and, jump in
0: here and say so, because I know a little bit about eDiscovery, discovery yeah, yeah. that it's actually pretty subtle. Yeah. Because there are um, for example, different ways to spell certain words. Like if you're looking for the word Muppet, but people know they're being watched, they'll spell it with three Ps or something like that. So there's this kind of yeah. there's this whole kind of oeuvre of like methodology around e discovery. And
1: extremely it's extremely lucrative. And you know, one thing it you know, it saves time, can potentially save money. It, it, it it's that people discovered it was actually Who more is it lucrative for well it's lucrative for the firms doing it it could be lucrative if but they're for... not filling out as much right because what? they can't bill out no no, 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 no. sorry for like e-discovery now. companies like it's, it's oh, a group okay. for them i mean for the law firms it can save you on labor um so to some degree you might be able to get away with fewer associates but this is getting really deep into a slight tangent what it wasn't really doing was actually like you know Helping lawyers figure out how to build a case, right? It wasn't really making helping them make legal decisions. It was helping them just like gather evidence,
3: right? It wasn't running ocean profiles well, on not, a jury box and exactly. saying this is the best argument to use for this particular jury.
1: Exactly. And so now there's this company out of Toronto, apparently, and we found this in a McLean's or Kathy found this in a McLean's article. It's called Tax Foresight. Your client comes. They, he tells you the case. He writes. He writes up the details for you. You input it in, into this program, and then it does you know a search through all the case law, and then it gives some prediction of about your percentage chance of winning. You're, you know, is this going to prevail upon a tax judge? You know, again, right, he says it can be like 90% accurate. I don't, that's the company's word for it. But the idea is that people are really now working towards this, where it's the next step in in legal technology, where it's not just about shaving off labor costs for filing through documents. It's really about doing the job of lawyers, sort of the same way people talk about Watson doing the job of doctors or assisting them, and that's a big question. And this,
3: is, this is something where it is quite obvious to me it, that the computers are going to be a little bit like they are in meteorology. The computers are obviously much better at certain kind of weather forecasty type things than humans are, and just like they're better at playing chess than humans are. But at all points, a human-operated computer where the human comes up with the final judgment is better than either. And a very good chess player working in conjunction with a chess playing computer is always going to be better than any computer. And that's still the case. And I feel like this is a really useful tool for any lawyer. They can get the computer to do like 90% of the work. And then they, if they know how to make it even better, they can do that. Yeah.
0: I was just going to, one of the things that was startling to me about this article was how completely gung ho uh, it was about this technology yeah. it went it went to the I point mean, of means saying i mean you a lawyer
1: so that's got to be good right <laughs> yeah, i think that's part of the reason but
0: but i mean it was really by the end of the article is saying well now that we've gotten that law part out of the way what are judges going to do with their time i mean basically right yeah. um I, I think we're really jumping the gun if we think that's what's going to happen in the next few years number 1 um because just what Felix said i think what this tool could be really good at and could be saving a lot of time and really making lawyers' lives better and more interesting, is it, if you give enough um, sort of attributes of a given case, it could look through the corpus of old cases and find related cases Yeah. very, very quickly. And then the lawyer who's in charge can say, oh, that case was won, that case was won, that case was lost, and they can sort of... And this is probably what lawyers actually do, right? Yeah, but
1: there's, I mean, speeding up legal research, and there have been people who have tried, but yeah, I mean, this is... that That is a... I mean, legal research is a cost center for law firms, right? Because you have to pay an associate to sit around and go and just look through Westlaw and find more, you know, some court decision that's relevant. And this does, you know, this makes it almost instantaneous. It seems or close to it. I think another interesting thing here is how a lawyer could try to input different details about the case and different versions of his case as he understands it and play the facts and see if there's a way to massage it to get a better potential outcome. Well, you can imagine. That's the next point I was
0: going to make. Is that like. There's way too much trust being given to this algorithm. And the algorithm, of course, depends crucially on what kind of attributes it asks for and what kind of attributes it's been trained to think are important. There's always going to be cases where the attributes that they ask for aren't actually the ones that ended up being important in the decision.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, and you know, it says a ninety percent chance of being correct, and I mean, those ten percent of chances might just be the hard cases. I mean, that's the other yes. thing here is that maybe it's good on the really, really easy cases yes. that you're just like you basically need to tell your potential client that, like, buddy, you don't have a shot in hell. But like the ten percent where this gets it wrong are the ones where you really actually need to hire a lawyer to you know tell you.
0: And beyond the like, maybe maybe poor accuracy, maybe not so poor accuracy, maybe yeah. that. Can could be addressed the quite the really interesting question to me is like the ethics of it like this is an unethical, algorithm, right? It's not trying to say whether this should have won or should have lost. Yeah. It's basically just saying, this has a 95% of chance of winning or losing. Yeah. And if if you start making decisions on which cases to take based on that number, rather than whether it's a good idea, whether the law should, we need new precedent or something along those lines, that's pretty scary. Oh,
1: uh, well, lawyers aren't taking it based on whether or not an outcome is good or not. Lawyers are taking cases based on, you know, is it a client walking and in, the in the door? to pay me.
3: In fact, the ethics of lawyering are such that you should be like relatively agnostic you know as to the ethics of the case and you should argue both sides as strongly as you can and then just see which way which one wins yeah
0: so you don't think there's any ethics involved here what about the lawyer didn't we talk at some point about law firms that or about financiers who like decide on whether what are the chances of something winning and therefore finance them or not
1: well, like, that there's...
3: that's like Peter Thiel, you know, funding a lawsuit against Gorka, but...
1: Yeah, I think the lawyers themselves... I mean, the idea of legal representation in this country is it's supposed to be kind of mercenaries. Like, everyone... On the criminal side, everyone's entitled to representation. On the civil side, I think everyone should be entitled to representation on the civil side for the most part if they want it. Um, but, you know, that's that's another...
0: I'm just saying it's a tool that could lend itself to a practical rather than that's true. You can
1: imagine a really crazy version of this where financiers are using it to pick which cases they are. I mean, like this is like way down beyond way beyond tax law. But if this something like this in a sci-fi world could be built up to take to deal with like
3: more difficult kind of lucrative litigation. Oh, I'm I'm down, man. I'm gonna <laughs> I, I'm gonna start up a hedge fund which uses this thing to predict the outcome of lawsuits, and then I'm just going to buy a stake in the outcome of all those lawsuits, and it'll I'll, it'll make me lots of money on the ones which win, and I'll retire a billionaire. You can
0: have like high frequency law trading.
3: I mean, well, it doesn't even need to be high frequency. One of my one of the hedge funds I know the best is this hedge fund called Elliott Associates, which is basically its entire existence is down to litigation strategies and they're like we have found this litigation which we think is going to win and it's going to be very profitable and that's how they make money if you could do that in a kind of more hands-off way without actually having to do the litigation yourself but just being able to look at all of the litigation which is going on on the planet and then make bets on the ones which are going to win i don't know man that's that that's kind of what bill ackman did with um with Herbalife, right? He kind of made a bet that various Herbalife litigation was going to come down and the FTC was going to close it down and that bet lost. He
1: really could well, have used a better algorithm. He could have used a
0: better <laughs> he algorithm. He
3: also
2: tried to
0: affect the outcome
1: of
3: that.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and... on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Felix. Yes. Tell me about statistics.
3: Okay. You know what I'd like to tell you about? Tell me. Is that one of my favorite financial journalists is this one is a compatriot of mine. Another English person called Mona Chalabi, who used to work for She's actually
0: my favorite person.
3: She's awesome.
0: Oh, my God. The Vagina Dispatches are amazing. <laughs> the Vagina Dispatches are an amazing series about everything you'd ever want to know and more about your vagina. And they're on The Guardian. Everyone should check them out.
3: She now works for The Guardian. Yes. And she wrote a really good piece this week about basically the risk... Of the Trump administration to our favorite thing, which is statistics, yes, yeah, and so, I want to give you a statistic about statistics this is this is my this is a statistic which appeared in mon 's piece um, the bureau of labor statistics we we they they 're just one of the many statistical arms of the u s government, but they do a lot of very important statistics, including our payrolls report that we try not to talk about every month um the bureau of labor statistics has a budget of 600 million dollars a year this is big money this is the only this is the kind of money that only government can do and we now have an administration which is explicitly opposed to almost all statistics or what you might call objective reality they don't like objective yardsticks for what they're doing they want to just be able to send out a tweet saying we won and then everyone should just report that they won without trying to you know look at statistics to find out if it's true and so the there's a threat here both on the funding level and on the ideology level that the completely non-partisan all we care about is accuracy multi-decade tradition of the bls and various other government agencies is has been is threatened now like it has never been threatened before and that we might lose um some of the time series which so much value is in and if you stop a time series you can't just like pick it up again it's it's very hard i so
1: i think the and i've talked to some Former government officials about this too, because I think it's something that's in the air. Pretty much every econ reporter is a little bit worried about this right now. Um, and I think the, the the two they're two separate threats. Really, There are like you said. There's the funding level, which is I think a very serious threat, and we can get deep into that. But like the what Trump will do to the budgets of these agencies and what his people might try to make them discontinue, those are real deep concerns. The separate threat, the more conspiratorial, they might fudge the numbers. I think that's less of a real concern. And part of that is because of this deep tradition of nonpartisanship that exists at these bureaus like the BLS. If someone were to actually walk in, you know, I was talking to a former chief economist over there, right? He was telling me that this is a group of people who literally when they are doing the jobs report, they put paper, newspapers over the windows of their offices so that no one from the Department of Labor can even see in to see what they're doing. These are incredibly secretive people who take their job very seriously. Um, You know, and if there was an official coming in and saying, you need to change you know, the denominator here to make it look better, the chances of that getting leaked are very, very high. People would find out very quickly, yeah, and it would but cause it's, it's, chaos, no, but absolute chaos.
3: It, it, that it, is not yeah, that's what I'm worried about, about, but there's other things which they could do which are much more realistic, like just say, oh, that statistic you've just come up with doesn't fit our narrative, so you're not allowed to release it.
1: I mean, that that itself, that is, I mean, that is, the, even that is ham-handed enough, though, that that would cause, that that would
3: come out. That I mean, is a that, sort but that's
0: of, already kind of happening, right? There's, like, gag orders on various kinds of
1: yeah.
3: research. And, and, def- and, and, Jordan, like, no one is saying that they're going to be able to gag these statistics without anyone knowing about it. But if they gag the statistic and they refuse to let it come out and it's not publicly available in public data sets and they, they stop the release of all of these time series that's bad even if they do it with great publicity so i think yeah. so and by the
0: way i want i wanted to jump in like i talked to my foia expert friend uh the freedom of information act and like all of the stuff that he said that that trump has declared is unreleasable by the epa and in potentially the bureau of labor statistics would still be discoverable under foia but then the question wouldn't be like would you would you ever get it? it would be you wouldn't get it on time you would get it at some later date which would make it Relatively useless and stale.
1: I think so. Here's the thing: Trump. You have to think about who's in Trump's administration, right? There are a bunch of financiers. There are a bunch of, uh, you know, there's guys like Wilbur Ross, right? Andy Puzder, who's you know a former fast food executive, is probably going to get confirmed in the end. I think um, he's he's going to be heading the Department of Labor. These are guys who understand the value of specifically the BLS numbers, and they understand that if there was any question about their integrity of what was going on at the BLS specifically, there would be a riot in the markets, among other places. That you, but that's uh, you, you not true. There are BLS cannot...
3: numbers which the markets care about, and there are yeah. BLS numbers which the markets don't care about. So they have something called the Supplemental Poverty Measure, which is really important. That's the, for... ce- that's the census. That's CPS.
1: So that's why I'm talking okay. about the BLS number. Okay, and but this is very. This there, is actually there's... an important distinction. To make.
3: Okay, so but but the point is there are a bunch of statistical agencies yeah. who measure things like racial inequality, poverty, um, rates of abortion, yeah. stuff which. The Trump administration has lots of reason not to want to measure, and the idea that like we can be reassured in any way by the fact that there are a relatively small number of data series which the markets really care about, I think, is deeply well, wrong. No,
1: no. What I'm saying, so I again, I'm I am talking specifically about the conspiracies about them playing with like the unemployment figures, right? Where there is a big concern, and actually Mona does kind of talk about this in her article, but the big fear is that they're going to go after the Census Bureau's funding. And particularly for something called the American Community Survey, which is sort of this rolling sample survey, right? The, the You have the the regular census that comes out every 10 years, and that's what determines things like congressional uh, districting, things like that. And then you have the American Community Survey, which gives us a lot more specific detail about things like income, poverty. You also have something called the CPS. But anyway, you have these specific smaller surveys that require money to do. And that's right. That's where we get a lot of our information about things like poverty, about and, inequality. And, and
3: you're saying that we should be worried. And about
1: we that. should be worried about those, not because someone is going to quietly go and say, hey, you need to cover up this result or you need to stop, you know, because, or you need to change this number. But because Republicans have explicitly talked about eliminating funding for some of these things, the ACS in particular has been targeted by Mick Mulvaney, who is currently nominated to be the head, uh, Donald Trump's uh, budget director. Mick Mulvaney thinks in his heart of hearts that basically all the data in the ACS could be replicated by the private sector. He has talked about this at public hearings. This is, I think, the real fear. And and this is
3: one other thing as well, is that it is very much in line with Trump administration ideals. To take a lot of the statistical data gathering and privatize it.
0: So yes. that's that. Thank you, guys. You, yeah. I, I haven't been saying anything because you guys have said all the things I want to say. I think we're all scared about similar types of things, although I want to say that Trump didn't seem to be afraid of a trade war, which businesses don't like, but he did it anyway, right? So I, I actually think that all statistics are up for grabs. Um, But the the major thing is this privatization of important information. And this, you know, statistics, like the census itself started as kind of like an understanding of the public. And it was meant in a large part, not completely, because there was Japanese internment issues as well, but like in large part for the public good. And now what we're seeing is more and more data is being privately owned. And the, the, I think the sort of perfect example of this is Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon, who, you know, tries to undermine people's faith in statistics at all times. I have a statistic. <clears throat> you
3: have, an, you have, an, an, have a, a faith here. in statistics statistic? Yeah.
0: So 68% of Trump supporters distrust federal data. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's insane how... F- how successful this has been, this campaign to stop believing federal government. But at the same time, guess where where else Steve Bannon is? He's on the board of Cambridge Analytica, that place we were talking about, that uses privatized data on every single voter to manipulate votes. So he believes in statistics when he gets to own it and manipulate it, but he undermines the public's belief in statistics. And for
3: every single data series that the federal government puts out, you know, they spend a certain amount of money, and then they get a data series in return. And in principle, you could say you could put that out to tender, and you could ask a whole bunch of private companies, can you give us this data series, and we'll just go with the lowest bidder. Now, obviously, there's a bunch of problems with that. But one of the big problems with that is that the private companies are going to bid much lower, if they get to keep their methodologies secret and private and public methodologies are key to reliable statistics. And as someone who used to write about emerging markets, you know, uh, a lot, I can tell you that if you go to a country like Argentina, where no one believes the inflation statistics, that has knock on effects throughout the entire economy, and businesses which you have no, no obvious reason to, to be affected by like, wonky inflation statistics wind up getting damaged in very, very real ways because they, you know, they just can't raise capital anymore because if you don't have a solid ground of like, we believe what the facts on the ground are, no one wants to touch you. Yeah. And I think the the, the,
1: you know, subtle thing here is like, it's consistency. It's that you can't even take a government data series and then change the methodology and say, "Okay, we were calculating in, inflation one way, but now we're going to give it over to this company with secret sauce," right? Like <laughs> this is, and this is something that when you guys like, I, I've watched Mulvaney respond to arguments like this, right? Like I've watched him in, in hearings, like with data with data people, where he's asking why can't the private sector do this, and they've given him like they've given him responses akin to what we're talking about here, and it's just blank. There is, there is no receptiveness. And so you are getting an administration that doesn't seem to understand the value of this public, consistent, transparent data.
2: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you.
3: All right. Since since this is the Kathy O'Neill yeah. episode, I feel like Kathy O'Neill should have the first number in the numbers round.
0: Yeah, my number is like embarrassingly local, but I still find it really interesting. So in New York City, um, there's a taxi crisis. Um, What's in, the taxi crisis? Well, it's a taxi medallion crisis.
3: Wait, you have to give the number. The, the taxi owners <laughs> yes, I are getting poorer. What's your number, Cathy? My number is
0: eighty-one percent. Thank you, um, Jordan. So eighty-one percent of the six hundred and ninety million dollars of loans for taxi medallions are at risk of default. Oh shit! Well, like, I <laughs> mean,
3: technically, one hundred percent of almost all loans are at risk of default. Okay. High risk. I think. Yeah. Risk. I think, okay,
0: you're right. You're right. That's not a very precise statement, but I feel like it's a real crisis in the world of taxi medallion loans.
3: The there there is been massively diminished liquidity in taxi medallions in general, and taxi medallion loans. Um, the, the taxi medallion loans used to just get rolled over, but a lot of the lenders are now insolvent, and so they're not rolling over the loans, and there's a big financing problem among uh, among taxi medallions, and the people who are getting hurt are mainly the lenders, a lot of whom are insolvent and going bust, uh, but there's basically only like three of those, and um, the people who own the medallions who tend to be large fleet owners who we also don't have a lot of sympathy with. Oh, so we don't mind? Wait, this I don't thing? think this how is much How it's much of this is because of Uber? Like, what percent? Well, it's,
0: it's just kind of ironic for it to come in the week where yeah, there was that, like, JFK um, taxi strike. Yeah. By the way, I went to that. It was an amazing, amazing experience. Um, no taxi. There was no traffic to get to the airport. And then everybody hated Uber, and there's this, like, hashtag delete Uber. But, you know, I guess I guess we're not going to worry about it because... Taxis are going to continue. To well, exist. I mean,
3: the, the the supply of medallions in a, in the city is fixed. There's about fourteen thousand, and so long as there's fourteen thousand medallions out there, the value of those medallions is really not important to normal people. That's right. So, talking of which, talk, yeah. like there were there were large protests over the weekend at the really unspeakable executive order banning a bunch of Muslims from entering the country, and my number is. 24 million, which is the number of dollars that was donated to the ACLU in one weekend. Oh, this is yeah. absolutely unprecedented. Normally, the ACLU gets about $4 million of donations per year. They managed to get 24 million in one weekend. Um, and what fascinates me, as slate money listeners will remember, is that I have this theory that philanthropy always needs to work with the government in order to be effective that you have to kind of like find a way of getting the government to do what you want it to do. Otherwise, you will never really be able to scale. But the ACLU is really the exception to that rule. And it's the one place where you can try and make a philanthropic donation against the government. And that's clearly what a lot of people want to do right now.
1: Um, My number is 12. Uh, As of as the moment we are recording this, it's been 12 days since inauguration. And
0: oh my god, that's wait, impossible! Wait. <laughs> yeah, right, it's
1: only, it feels like twelve years. Yeah, right. But it, it's each, impossible. Yeah, there's like it's like that Modest Mouse song, right? Like the 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 years go fast, but the days are so slow. Mm, <laughs> like absolutely. Um, but um, so specifically, I'm bringing this up because at this point, Donald Trump is still not named a head of the Council of Economic Advisors. And a few episodes ago, I talked about how. Uh, it was possibly going to be Larry Kudlow. He was maybe going to fill this role, but it, he's not actually an economist he, or an academic economist. So this oh, might yeah, be yeah. an administration without economists. Right now, this administration has one economist in it. It's got Peter Navarro, who's like an anti-trade you know, guru, uh, anti-China trade guru who's, who's in the White House. But the CEA is not being filled. So right now, we are, it looks like, and there's talk of it never being filled. Right now, Political Playbook had a thing about how Trump's just like, maybe not even going to bother. Maybe he's bother. just going to
0: appoint Steve Bannon to run that too. Well, well that's well, a possibility. The point <laughs> is he,
3: <laughs> has, he has Gary Cohn running the NEC. What, like, and there's, honestly, is uh, someone who is not a political wonk, and maybe yeah. Jordan can explain this to me. Yeah, But- I have never really understood the point of having a CEA and an NEC. What is the point of having both?
1: With the well, what the C well NEC is more of a um, it's more of like a operational role. You're coordinating different economic parts of the of the government that deal with economics. The CEA is actually supposed to give you advice on like, oh, we're heading into a recession. Like maybe here's what you should do in terms of fighting it. Um, like. You know, uh, Christine Romer was like, hey, Barack Obama, I think you need a big stimulus right now. Like a couple hundred billion dollars would be a good idea. And so that was and oh, Barack Obama was like, oh, OK, yeah, we should do that. Like, that's the kind of thing you're supposed to have them around for. and For
0: giving you a sage advice. Yeah, giving you like actually informed. I'm so informed surprised ec- that he doesn't have that. Yeah,
1: I, right. It's just like, <laughs> but anyway, uh, it's not shocking. It's just like. Yeah, I, I feel in a way vindicated that we are mostly, not entirely, but mostly it appears heading for an administration without economists.
3: And, and I'm all in favor in principle. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> I feel like an administration without economists, like that's probably the best part of the Trump administration. <laughs> in any case, on which note, I think we need to wrap this show up. Kathy O'Neill. Yeah. Thank you for curating this show in I hope such everyone a magnificent enjoyed way. my dream this is <laughs> um, you, you are of course welcome to come back to curate any show in the future oh thank you we might drag you back against your will and I'd just tie visit. you into the chair <laughs> at some point force you to opine on vers- certain things but um, we do have you for one more show yep on creativity and then after that it's going to get interesting yeah I, I kind of have this secret hope that we might be able to get Mona Chalabi in one sort of way. oh my
0: god she's the best
3: um, so that's a possibility find out who we're going to be having on this show because there's a lot of great names that you've been sending in thank you thank you very much to everyone who's been nominating people to replace the irreplaceable
0: and thank you for all the kind letters in, in you know to me because I love you, you guys I really do
3: uh, th- keep, keep the emails coming the email address is at slate.com. do keep on subscribing because we are going to have some fun stuff even without Kathy uh, many thanks to Zach Dynastine who produced this show as well as to Steve Flick tight and Andy Bowers the executive producers here at the Panoply network which is at itunes.com slash panoply so we are going to talk to you next week with another special guest a man called Derek on Slate Money. In this life-